Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 11 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Today is Wednesday, April 5th, and I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek, and Bobby, uh, basketball season's over, baseball season's underway, the Mets are in first place. Well, let's hope it stays that way, Steve, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, so so I, I told my wife the statistic that the Mets have the best record in Major League history on opening day, and her response, classic Karen, um, was, of course they do. It's typical for the Mets to give their fans hope and then, you know, Ouch. cut their hearts out. Oh, it's, that makes me, I, I, I just got a blister on my pitching hand just hearing that. That's a Noah Syndergaard joke, everybody. And with that, we are off. Bobby, what's going on? Well, it's, uh, it's uh, like... Completely reliable these days, Steve, that we're going to get a new <laughs> twist just in time for the podcast that raises some new legal angle about the Russia campaign and what I guess we're going to call the, 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 what I frankly will call the ginned up controversy over unmasking. So right now, I think it's ginned up. The, the, the gift that keeps on giving, right? Everyone's love affair with FISA. It's unbelievable. It is giving us lots of occasions to talk about what are the rules for targeting, for <laughs> dissemination, for minimization, and for unmasking. And we've talked about that some on prior episodes. We're going to do it again today because it seems like the message is not getting through. Are you trying to say that a certain president of the United States has not been listening to our podcast? You know, I would like a tweet. That would be nice. Um, hey, Lawfare got a tweet. That was fabulous. And it definitely, <laughs> it definitely had a traffic impact. All right, so. Oh wait, um, let me just say real quick. You know who, you know who retweeted one from me the other day, uh, Julian Assange, um, and it has led to a kind of a nonstop set of notifications on my feed about this person or that person like this tweet, um, and it is incredible how much of it, uh, how many of the titles of those accounts are, are deplorable this or, or pro-Trump that. And I think it's fascinating as just this little slice of evidence about the uh, the degree of overlapping interests there. And the echo chamber. The echo chamber effect. And, and the number of bots on Twitter. Well, with friends like that, Bobby. Who needs listeners? <laughs> Apparently not us. If <laughs> we get by anyways, here All we right, are. So, so Bobby, the, the, the provocation for us talking about this today is a statement President Trump gave to the New York Times. By the way, can he just make up his mind? Is the New York Times fake news, or is it people he gives statements to? I'm confused. You know, you, you can you can bash uh, mainstream media, if that's what we're still calling it, but at a certain point, you, you are going inter- to interact with them. I mean, right, I think it was, didn't, uh, we found out that uh, they were pulling the health care reform bill because President Trump yeah, called, called the Washington Post reporter. Right. Well, you know, it turns out, it, look, there are a lot of signs that this, it's funny you mentioned this, because I think this will lead to something we were going to talk about separately, but it fits here. There are various signs that there are things that, that Trump and, and the folks around him wanted to do to shake up the usual way of doing business in Washington. A whole new approach, say, to who's on the National Security Council, uh, who gets to show up at meetings, Right. And uh, today, um, we had the uh, Federal Register publishing uh, National Security Presidential Memorandum Number 4, which uh, can, I, I'd say it basically adopts the traditional Scowcroft-style approach to who's on the uh, NSC, what the process is, makes clear that the Homeland Security Council is, is subordinate to, or at least the, uh, the, the head of it, Tom Bossert, ultimately answers to H.R. McMaster, and critically removes the earlier idea of having Steve Bannon uh, sit in these meetings, and as, be, a, as a matter of course. And be a standing member of the principal's committee. Right, which is not to say that the president can't invite him routinely. He might. No, but it's an interesting example, Bobby, to me, of two things, right? Of, of H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, asserting a pretty fair amount of autonomy That's right. vis-a-vis the president, um, and also perhaps of something we talked about before, the, the deep state fighting back. Um, we'll see if that's if that's more than if this is anything more than just McMaster. It, it could be that it could also be, and this goes back to my theme about mainstream media that yep. um, there are certain things that you might want to you might want to change the usual way of doing things. Then you get in there and you find out well, actually, there's a reason it was that way, and it turns out there's a reason you want the DNI and the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and you don't want Steve Bannon uh, as standing members of the National Security Council. And it turns out having access to and speaking with and interacting with the New York Times is also. A pretty functional thing. So, Bobby, on Twitter, we received a question from friend of the podcast, uh, Karen Vladek, I think did is you, her name. Did you pronounce that right? I, I'll have to ask her tonight <laughs> when I see her at home. Um, and Karen <laughs> asks if Bannon's removal from the NSC matters. Um, I guess my reaction is it certainly matters symbolically. I think it's a positive development, positive statement. 
in practice, it probably matters a little less. No, I, right, because, again, the president can invite it to any particular meeting. Bannon can be invited, and that wouldn't be inconsistent with past practice. Other political advisors and strategists have been brought into meetings from time to time. But the symbolism, I think, is very powerful. But how's this for a segue? Speaking of national security advisors. Ooh, nice. Thank you. Thank Who you. was it that used to be the national security advisor? Oh, Colin Powell. No, no, more recent. Uh, Happy birthday, Colin Powell, by the way, if you're listening. He's not. Uh, Susan Rice? Am I, yeah, pro- am I pronouncing that no, correctly? No, what, what has that got to do with the New York Times? Ah, so apparently uh, this morning, uh, President Trump in an interview with the New York Times um, said something to the effect of, I don't remember the exact quote, Bobby, but Susan Rice is a criminal or committed a crime. He thinks, yeah, he thinks that, he said, yes, I think, I think this she committed a crime. So what is this all about, Steve? How did this come up? Um, how did this come up? So a story emerged over the weekend, I think it was, Bobby, um, that further to the ongoing question of exactly what surveillance was conducted by the U.S. government of the Trump campaign's contacts with various Russian officials and other Russian interests, um, that somewhere along the way, then National Security Advisor Susan Rice requested that at least one, perhaps several names um, in a particular series of intelligence reports she received, be unmasked. Um, and this is apparently set off the latest round in this preposterous continuing story. So it's absolutely been treated as a as a gotcha moment. This has been touted as a smoking gun. I think that phrase may actually have been used by Senator Rand Paul, uh, who, of course, is loving this because the, the upshot of all this is to call into question the, uh, the, the scope and nature of activities conducted by the Intelligence Committee insofar as they affect U.S. persons. And so from a, uh, from a strongly libertarian perspective, that's going to resonate. And I think you're, you're seeing some of that common cause there. Now, um, it's probably worth going through uh, to disaggregate the legal issues and, and really quickly kind of knock each one off in sequence so that we can really appreciate where does the Susan Rice news fit into this? But before we get into the details, Ben, can we just start with the punchline, which I think you and I both agree that this is a whole lot of fury um, signifying probably virtually nothing. No, that's right. In fact, I would say it's even worse than that. I, I think there's a complete lack of any smoking gun here. There's still no reason to think any of this was out of the ordinary or problematic in the way that's been suggested. And... The effect of suggesting otherwise so loudly and so systematically and with such political resonance is to chip away at the entire legitimacy of the of the legitimacy of the entire intelligence collection enterprise. And so this might be a good point, uh, a good moment to plug um, our mutual friends Ben Wittes and Jack Goldsmiths. I think really excellent piece on lawfare from yesterday. Yes. About how this scandal, among other casualties maybe claiming the long-term credibility and, and perceived legitimacy of the intelligence community. That's right. They, they talk about the grand bargain that's sort of woven into the idea of having these kinds of institutions and the, the degree of domestic political trust there needs to be to undergird them and, and what the inevitable effects are going to be on that trust from this sort of incessant chipping away, the incessant suggestion that, in fact, the IC is somehow partisan, somehow able to engage in these sort of sort of comically uh, partisan uh, abuses of their power when in fact there's no evidence but it doesn't really matter does it Steve no I mean I think the Bobby and Jack's point is you know the uh, Bobby and Jack Ben and Jack's point mm-hmm. well I happily associate myself fair with enough um, is that you know the grand bargain that led to FISA and the intelligence committees in the first place was a reaction to real intelligence scandals um, right and right. that it's not clear what the end game is here oh that's right so we're, we're going to be talking about this for a long time All so right. but so, so to dive in so so to, to understand what unmasking is right we yeah. have to take a couple of steps through targeting and reverse targeting yeah let's start with let's start with targeting so there's this whole thing is about the uh, the surveillance of communications and whether these were emails or sounds more like it was phone calls you keep hearing descriptions of transcripts so it sounds like there are recorded phone calls um, the targeting, or the decision to actually go out and, and get on a particular phone number and go up on that number and collect what is said on that line is a targeting decision where there's a particular person who's either an agent of a foreign power or, or that, that number is associated directly with the foreign power, like the number to the Russian embassy. Now, now and, and Bobby, let's just be clear, everybody, right? The president can't just call someone at the NSA and say, I want you to get up on this number. 
Well, that's not that's not how it works. Right? <laughs> but the, the important point here is that even those who are touting the idea that something abusive has happened, like uh, the chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, Devin Nunes, drink. Uh, <laughs> you know, we sh- we should drink while we're doing. We this. really should. Uh, you probably listeners are probably assuming that. Well, wait, these guys are sober. Oh. Well, we are, for now. Um, anyways, uh, the, the targeting decision has been described by people who are otherwise referring to the overall situation as an abuse as having been targeted lawfully. Now, this means either that there's what we could call 12333 collection, that is, it's it's foreign intelligence collection outside the United States, targeting a foreign person, collections outside the United States, the whole deal's outside the United States, and, and not subject to the to the FISA regime. Uh, I, I'd have the impression that's not what the case was here, Steve. Do you have that same impression? I really do. I mean, I think what we're looking at here is probably maybe, Bobby, more 702 ballpark. Or, or FISA Title One. And, and, and just to be clear, right, FISA Title One is the classic old-school warrant Right, where the government has reason to believe, probable cause indeed, that they're looking at an agent of a foreign power on U.S. soil. Right. So the key is it's individualized if it's Title I. Individually, the uh, the party seeking the coverage, which in this case probably was, if it's if it's FISA Title I, this is probably FBI conducting counterintelligence investigations. They make an application. It gets vetted at multiple levels, including not just through the FBI, but then through the Justice Department and the National Security Division. And then eventually, um, a set of papers are produced that are meant to contain evidence sufficient to persuade a federal district judge who is sitting as part of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court that there's probable cause to believe that the target is is an agent of a foreign power. And that could be a U.S. person, but it's probable cause that they're an agent of a foreign power, like, say, the Russian government, and that the number that's going to be collected on is used by that person, and that the purpose of the collection is going to include foreign intelligence collection. All right, so even Devin Nunes says that the underlying surveillance was lawful. Which means that somebody lawfully decided to target, uh, you know, an agent of a foreign power, and in the course of collecting pursuant to that FISA court order, there were incidentally collected communications where either U.S. persons were named in that phone call or there was a U.S. party on that phone call who was not the target. And it's, it's very clear that there, something happened where there were communications where the, the foreign agent target is speaking with people associated with the Trump campaign. All right. So now we have the moment where we have this take, right? The the transcript, let's say, of these conversations. Um, Bobby, why are these transcripts going to have masking? Oh, wait. Before we get to masking, let me yeah. mention. So we've been talking about targeting. A few people, at, I think at the most kind of conspiratorial extreme, are suggesting not just that there's a problem, which we'll get to in a moment, on unmasking the names of those incidentally collected U.S. persons. A few people have suggested, no, 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 this whole thing's an out-and-out conspiratorial abuse where the whole game was to intentionally target the uh, Trump campaign officials and using the excuse of targeting the Russians, now the, or, or whoever the foreign government is. I think we have to assume Russians. Uh, the funny thing about that is, is it's such an assumption that, oh, the way you can get to the Trump campaign is to go target the Russians. <laughs> well, sorry. So there's still the, I mean, right, there is the elephant in the room, which is that to accept the conspiracy theories, you have to accept the entire premise of the investigation. Right, that there's got to be a lot of communication. So, so With Russia. So, but let's set that aside, and let's be really clear. Reverse targeting is not permissible. Everything Everything in the rules is designed to preclude exactly this sort of thing, precisely because it would work around and undermine all of the 1978 onward regime. And to, if you just think through, like, what would practically have to happen if Barack Obama and Susan Rice or whoever else is, sat around one day and said, you know, let's figure out yeah. how to reverse target the Trump I want to know what the Trump people are doing. I bet they're talking to the Russians, so let's target the Russians so we can sneak in insights about what the uh, the Trump people are doing. So, now, so, first of all, you're only going to get what they're saying to the Russians. First of all, right? Second of all, you're going to need um, the senior leadership at DOJ at the National Security Division to sign off on the application. Right. You're going to need a, an independent Article Three FISA judge to approve the application. You'll need Jim Cummings to get involved because this FBI. is probably going to come up through the FBI, not NSA. Right. You'll need the FBI director and Jim, or else Mike Rogers at NSA. Jim Comey, that you know that hack and show for the Democrats that we all know him to be, right? <laughs> well, and, and it did it for Mike Rogers, right? So the, the, the point is, there's really no practical way for this to happen. Nope. It requires such, like all ridiculous conspiracies, it requires such leaps and bounds of performance and, and, and complicity. And, and even for those who are suspicious of President Obama, who are skeptical of President Obama, who don't trust President Obama, fine. 
but do you also not trust the Attorney General of the United States, the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the National Security Division, the Director of the FBI, the Article Three federal judge who sits on the FISA court, the Director of NSA, the Director of the NSA, and the five or six other random individual government officers who would all have to have been in on this for this to be the conspiracy that is that is proposed. So as you can see, we're skeptical. We, we're skeptical of we're skeptical that reverse targeting took place. But that's just at the targeting stage. So then the information is captured. Yep. Um, it it then gets put into it either gets shared in raw form to customers or it gets put into some kind of analytic product and then the product which could contain quotes from the raw take um, gets shared with the customers. I say customers advisedly. Who are the customers? The customers are the actual policymakers for whose benefit all this activity takes place. Like it's, who? Like, oh, say the president or his national security advisor. And, and, and remind me, who was President Obama's last national security advisor? That would be Susan Rice. Susan Rice, okay. Right, who every day was and, and should have been briefed with important foreign intelligence information it is so the the big reveal we're told <laughs> is that Susan Rice a was given access to this information and b when given access to it it was the the US person names were minimized inappropriately so because that's the default approach when you have a US surprise there you go when it's when it's uh, a U.S. person name that's incidentally collected, you, you take out the name, you put in a bracket and say U.S. person one, U.S. person two, etc. But that doesn't mean you can never reverse that and put the name in. It is perfectly obvious, and I think just a matter of pure common sense, that in some context, and this seems like a paradigm case, you can't fully appreciate the import of the conversation you're reading about and understand the full context of the, the foreign intelligence value. Unless you see, well, well, who is that person who's clearly someone associated with the Trump campaign, who's talking to some foreign agent about perhaps, you know, some policy shift that they're promising that is contrary to the current government policy. Right. So imagine if the transcript said, right, you know, let's just assume for the sake of argument, it's Mike Flynn and Sergey Kislyak, right, the okay. Russian ambassador. Right. Transcript has Kislyak saying, so what are you telling us is going to happen? Yeah, if we do this, what will you do? And or, U.S. person one says, right. you know, well, what we will do is, and yeah. he proposes a particular course of action. And you need to know, who is, is that, this is that, person? Is that what? the pizza guy? Right, right, right. So or is that someone who actually was in a position? And indeed, right. is that a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee? Right? That might be very interesting. Indeed. Right. So the upshot is that the smoking gun is supposed to be the revelation that Susan Rice, when reading these reports, uh, responded to the intelligence community saying, I want to see the names. I want this unmasked. Uh, and, and various sources have tried to suggest that this in itself is a problem. That what, how, dare, how could the customer, as opposed to the, sort of the, the, the line person, how could the customer ask for this? It's, can, it's entirely obvious why. And, it, and indeed, as I think Rice herself said, and look, I... I've got no brief for Susan Rice, and I think that she has repeatedly created endless problems for herself, yep. including in this case by previously suggesting she didn't know anything about this. So obviously, plenty of reasons uh, to distrust her in general, but but not as to this, not no, as to this. I mean, uh, the, the, it would have been a dereliction of duty, as she said, not to find out more. Um, and so, so, so just to be clear, right? So for the story to be what it's being told as at the moment. You would need this grand conspiracy on the part of a whole bunch of senior government officials, and you would need to have a completely warped view of what the National Security Advisor's job is. Right. And, and so another element here, it's been suggested that, well, maybe a few times we've seen suggested, you know, this isn't information, it wasn't even about Russia. And, it, and, and then it's further been claimed in a few media sources that maybe it, it wasn't foreign intelligence. The context didn't suggest the logic of unmasking. Well, in which case how is this possibly collected from a conversation with a foreign agent? And if that were the case, why would anyone have wanted to hear about what it was? Or, or we, I guess the idea is somehow in targeting, say, the Russian embassy or some other source like that, or I guess if it's not Russia. Right. What the, the, Let's say the Turkey. The, it's, it's, yeah, right. No, I, have a no, right. I, I have a Turkey theory. Yeah, it could, this could be Mike Flynn in Turkey. So, so, yeah. right. so, so it's entirely possible that the it's not Russia actually has legs. And right. that what this was really about was an investigation into what we now know to have been Mike Flynn's completely shady dealings with the Turkish government. Half a million dollar payments, writing an op-ed on election day, having, a, change having the super sketchy meeting about, you know, um, 
unlawfully returning a Turkish dissident to Turkish right. custody. I mean, so, so yeah, so it could be all that, but but again, but that was obvious, obvious foreign intelligence value, right? Right. So so the whole thing continues to be not just a nothing burger, but actually a, a ginned up faux controversy now over people doing their jobs over people doing their jobs and of course the obvious damage is it casts a shadow if there's enough friction involved even if ultimately nothing comes of it if there's enough friction it casts a shadow over the people in those jobs today doing the same thing when they need to do it for example HR McMaster and, and and not just that but for example the people who are currently trying to investigate the degree and the significance of the connections between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. Now, a few folks I've talked to have said like, well, okay, but, but, but it all ends up in the newspaper. Okay, let's move on to the further and entirely different right. question of leaks. Right. Not unmasking. There's no reason right now to suspect illegality in the unmasking. Um, and the case has not been made legally or factually. The information, this whole story does leak out. And so then it gets kind of interesting. So how did it leak out? And is that a problem? Now here, I'm, I'm more sympathetic at a certain level. At, at one level, all of this is the, the whole prospect of Russian interference or other foreign interference in, in corruption, strong or soft, in the campaign is horribly disturbing and it needs to come out. On the other hand, there are real legal issues with leaking, leaking this sort of information, especially the fruits of collection. And I think this whole faux controversy is exactly why we have to have strong rules against leaking this sort of information. Look how it can spiral into total insanity. Yeah, I guess, uh, co color me not 100% convinced that even without the leak, you wouldn't see some effort by the Trump team to get some of this out there. But listen, I mean, the, the most important point, I think, Bobby, you and I agree that there's that the only actual criminal liability issue here, question is whoever actually leaked this information. Um, I think we also probably agree that um, even if, right, some mid-level Obama official is responsible for the leak, that doesn't change the specter of what was leaked, right? That doesn't change the propriety of what Susan Rice did. That doesn't change the legality of the underlying surveillance, right? All it means is that the means by which this information got out to the media might have itself been unlawful, but none of the witch hunt rhetoric is true. Is, it, is this, and now I haven't thought this through, I just, it occurs to me, is this analogous sort of to Pentagon Papers and, and um, you know, there's the question of the legality of having leaked the papers, it, it's not lawful, but they're out and they present this very important public policy story. Right, so, or Snowden, right? I mean, right, you know, the Snowden disclosures were, I think, you know, by almost any account, a violation of the Espionage Act, right? But those, oh, yeah. di but the dis the legality or not of the disclosures did not bear on the legality or not of the controversial surveillance programs that were disclosed. So they're just apple and orange issues, which is not to say they either one cuts either way. It's just you've got to be disciplined and talk about them separately. Look, it's like uh, we're doing in class: Kerr Frisbee doctrine, the legality through which you acquired custody of the defendant. That's a separate question from whether or not that defendant's guilty of a crime and can be prosecuted. We, throw, we, throw that curve frisbee. Throw the curve frisbee when you can. Um, so speaking of, I mean, I think I think we probably run this into the ground at least for the moment. I'm sure we'll come back to it. Yep. Um, but speaking of clever unmasking, this is actually not something, Bobby. I think we're going to spend any real time talking about. But just my sort of amusing quasi national security story <laughs> of the week. Um, award goes to Ashley Feinberg, um, who published a story, gosh, March 30th was like, what, last Thursday? Um, it feels like ages ago. It really does. Um, basically, detailing how she figured out what anonymous Twitter account belongs to FBI Director Jim Comey. Poor Jim Comey. Can't get a break. <laughs> he's, he's, he's hardly even using it, and people are chasing it down. You, Although you he has a lot more followers now. Oh, I'm sure he does. It's all, a, it's all a clever ploy to build up followers. So I would just say, I mean, I would encourage almost everyone, you know, you guys should read Ashley's story. It's really fun. Um, to me, Bobby, the highlight of the story, like the moment of the story where I basically almost fell out of my chair, the clue that really convinced Ashley that she was on the right track was that one of the 27 accounts that were following <laughs> this anonymous random account um, I'm sorry, the only person who was following it, right? There, um, Comey was following 27 accounts, and there was exactly one account following him. And it was. Ben Wittes. Ah. <laughs> but you know, Ben follows lots of people. Yes, and Ben follows people consciously. And yeah. so why would Ben be following an egg that doesn't have any tweets? You know, I'm always fascinated by those egg pictures. They're kind of soothing to look at. Anyway, this is a fun thing that people can run down. It is not a national security story. It's just like, wow, 
2017. Um, so good job to you, Ashley Feinberg. Next thing you know, somebody's going to figure out who are the clowns behind at NSL podcast. Mm. We haven't masked that very well. <laughs> no, no, we haven't. Uh, all right, so Bobby, um, we're going to move on to a couple of other stories that I think are probably less um, headline generating, yeah. but actually maybe more interesting. Yeah, what's happening down at Guantanamo these days? Oh gosh, what is what isn't happening at Guantanamo? Well, no new de- no new detainees. You know what? Are we seventy six days in <sighs> or so? And yet, so far, no new detainees. So watch that space. And yet, there's still litigation because we've got the ever-fruitful cornucopia of litigation that is the military commission process. I thought we talked about cornucopias. Let's <laughs> <laughs> give me the magic word. Al- along with uh, the uh, the magic phrase of the week is, hire Eric. Hire Eric. There you go, hire that, Eric. That's just going to be our inside joke, dear <laughs> listeners. It's no joke, however, we mean it. Well, to the one person who we actually are directing it to. <laughs> um, so, um, Bobby, this is actually not a recent development. This happened back in March, but um, thanks to Shane Cotidall from the Center for Constitutional Rights, I came to learn yesterday of this very strange order issued by the Court of Military Commission Review in the Alcosi case. Right. Remind us, or who was Alcosi? Who was Alcosi? Well, he's still or who alive. is? Who is? Um, so Alcosi, we often talk about the eight convictions before the military commissions. And Alcosi is one of the eight. Alcosi pled guilty um, in late 2010 to charges of conspiracy and material support. Um, right there, folks who have been paying attention to the military commission should have alarm bells going off. Wait, conspiracy, th- that sounds like a problem. Um, Alcosi pled guilty, though, in exchange for basically having most of his time in detention credited toward time served. He's released in 2012 and sent back to the Sudan, um, where, as, as we'll get to in a moment, apparently he returned to his less than stellar activities. Um, but in the meantime... Well, let, let me, let me yeah. underscore that. So uh, apparently the guy's a member of AQAP now. Indeed. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he's a, he, he's he a free a, agent. He's, he's a recidivism case. He, he's a free agent. He, uh, he, he's, he, joined, he's joined the franchise. Uh, or, or, or the new franchise. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, while all this is happening, the various developments in the D.C. Circuit call into question the constitutionality of his conspiracy and material support prosecu- uh, uh, convictions. So his lawyers, or at least the people who had represented him in the military commission, um, try to appeal on his behalf. And you might think, well, wait, he's out already, so what does he care? Well, there's collateral consequences of various kinds. And so it's generally thought that you can, when there's good grounds to say that the charges were actually not legit charges to begin with, you could try to get it vacated after And indeed, fact. this is what happened in the Hamdan case. Hamdan 2 was decided well after Hamdan yep. had been released from detention. Um, D.C. Circuit Judge Ginsburg actually wrote a whole concurrence yeah. in Hamdan 2 about why the case wasn't moot. So in theory, he could raise these arguments that but it's kind of did did he raise them here all right so here's the next issue well so there are two there are two procedural issues before we get to the actual headline yeah sorry to sorry to draw this out everybody um procedural issue number one he pled guilty right and in and in his plea agreement he waived his right to appeal Mm -hmm. so there is a question about whether that waiver is effective um the interesting thing here is one of the other seven eight people convicted by the military commissions australian david hicks Mm -hmm. was actually able to get around the waiver in his plea agreement after these developments, after these charges were thrown out. So that might not be fatal. Problem number two, is Al Kosi actually appealing or is it just his lawyers? Right. I mean, the guy is an AQAP member somewhere in the hinterlands of Yemen. Um, what, did those, what do they really know about what his views are these days? Is this sort of cause lawyering without your client? So it, it might be. I mean, and so part of what's going on in the CMCR is an effort to figure out whether um, Alcosi has given his lawyers any actual affirmative permission right. to pursue this appeal on his behalf. And, and the, all very ordinary stuff. We wouldn't be talking about it except for one little curveball. Right. So at the end of the order in which the... So the Court of Military Commission Review on March 11th issues this order where they say, listen, we need to have some discovery um, on the question of whether Alcosi has actually authorized your appeal, fine. Um, but then, as sort of a throwaway at the end of the order, um, there's this paragraph, which I'm just going to read verbatim because I think it'll be right, useful. Right, so this is the Court of Military Commission Review, panel opinion. Yep, March 11th. Um, there is another issue that may bear upon this appeal. For several years, there have been reports that since his release in 2012, Al-Khosi has joined Al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula and has urged attacks on the United States Uh, citation to December 2015 Miami Herald article. Whether this is true needs to be answered, writes the Court of Military Commission Review. Is there a citation there? Nope. And the government will be directed to do so. 
Okay, so Steve. Wait, there's more. Oh, there's more. What impact any post-release participation in hostilities against the U.S. or its coalition partners, if any, may have on the instant appeal is for another day? Okay. Close quote. And today is that another day. We need to figure out what is going on here. What could be a reason that this is relevant to the appeal? So let me start by saying I have no fracking idea. Um, so the, the short version is I suspect what's going on here is one or two or even all three of the judges on the CMCR panel um, are thinking about a couple of other doctrines that actually do have something to say about when bad guys are not allowed to continue to pursue litigation. One is called the Fugitive Disentitlement Doctrine, um, that if you escape from custody, you can't turn around and challenge the custody that you escaped from. And of course, here he didn't, he didn't escape in the we first re- instance. We released, we released him. him. Right. Um, there's the fuzzing wrinkle that he then goes and joins AQAP, or at least that's what we're told. And so does that create some sort of functional analogy to, the, to this? Uh, so I, I don't think that gets us to fugitive disentitlement. It might get us to this antiquated concept called the alien enemy disability rule. Um, and there's actually a Supreme Court case that I suspect none of our listeners have ever heard of called Ex parte Coato from World War II, which is the last time I believe the Supreme Court discussed this rule. And the idea behind enemy alien disability rule is when it's wartime, um, a national, the country with which we're at war, should not have the right to pursue civil claims in U.S. courts. And so by extension, perhaps, uh, Al-Khosi, if he is a uh, member of an of a armed group we are in an armed conflict with, shouldn't be able to pursue civil litigation in our courts. But that's not really what we're talking about here, is it? No, this is a criminal appeal. Um, it's a direct criminal appeal that's provided by statute, right? It's a direct criminal appeal challenging a conviction on the grounds that the underlying offenses are substantively unconstitutional. So just to play through the logic, um, the jurisdiction of the military commissions itself is, is actually literally limited to cases involving uh, unlawful, uh, what we used to call unlawful enemy combatants, now we call unprivileged belligerents, same difference, um, members of the enemy organized groups uh, in, in these armed conflicts. So that's who's supposed to be litigating in these cases and defending themselves and appealing and, and so forth. So that status alone, the status of being the member of the organized armed group, cannot be enough to disenfranchise him, if you will, from litigating. It's got to be that plus the fact that he's abroad in a circumstance in which he's effectively evading capture by, or, or presumed to be evading capture by the United States. And that that's where it seems like it's some sort of reach for an analogy to the fugitive scenario. Right? I, I mean, more than a little bit of a reach. I mean, it seems to me that there are a couple of things worth saying here, right? The first is the government has not made this argument. Right. This is the CMCR coming out of left field. This is this is totally sui sponte. Right. Okay. Um, point number two. I just don't understand the argument in a criminal case where the government was the moving party, where the government pursued litigation, and where the defendant who was seeking to appeal did not abscond from custody, but was in fact released pursuant to a plea agreement the government entered into in good faith. Yeah. No. I. It, it's a really unique circumstance. I don't know. I can't think of a similar circumstance where you have still pending litigation of any kind, uh, especially criminal, and the person's basically a member of the enemy force, and the question even presents itself. And it's not clear the court is actually going to take the position that, in fact, you know, we're going to dismiss this this claim based on the representation of the guys in the enemy arm, armed force. It, but they clearly are entertaining the possibility, right? I can't think of any other reason why they demand a briefing on this matter. You got me. And, and just to be clear, I mean, the CMCR, Bobby, you and I have both written about the CMCR. It does not have, let's just say, a record of being especially creative um, or thinking it has a broad amount of authority in the context of the military. So it makes it all the more curious that they, they've kind of reached out for this one. Yep. It, it, it seems like there's more to the story that we don't know, and so we're going to keep watching this space. Indeed. All right. So, you know, more fun with the military commissions. Um, Bobby, I think the last sort of big substantive thing we wanted to touch on, um, or maybe one of the last two things we wanted to touch on, was uh, a new D.C. Circuit ruling, also in the Guantanamo case. We haven't talked about the D.C. Circuit and Guantanamo sort of in the outside the military commission context. This used to be a big thing in our field. Well, you know, it, so you've kind of got two sets of cases that have percolated through the D.C. Circuit. You have the, the habeas cases, obviously. Those are always a big deal. People's liberties directly at stake, uh, the ability to detain enemy combatants directly at stake. Um, 
And then you've got all the collateral stuff, and there are very, various substrands there, one of which is uh, various kinds of litigation to make the government cough up documents, photographs, videos, and, and that sort of thing gets uh, litigated endlessly. Steve, what happened here in this particular case? Whew. All right, so this is actually the culmination of a story that really got heated, I think, in the fall of 2015. Um, and this is about a series of videotapes um, that were produced um, about government efforts, Bobby, to force feed uh, detainees who had been hunger striking. Mm -hmm. So just to wind this all backwards, right, the hunger strikes were a response to new search procedures um, that the detainees objected to. The detainees' only real it, mm, leverage, right, was to hunger strike. That was really the only way they could protest. Um, the government then started force-feeding hunger-striking detainees. The government claimed because it had to for their health and safety, right? If they weren't going to eat, they well, could potentially die. That does, that does happen when you stop eating. It does. I mean, now there are claims by the detainees, not central to this litigation, that the government was overzealous, that some of the detainees did not actually need to be force-fed, that the particular method of force-feeding was especially invasive. It was, right, rectal. Right. So, so we have all these sort of layers of, first it's conditions of confinement type litigation, and it, and it spawns a, a, a nuanced question about the particular methods being used to prevent people from dying uh, through hunger strike. And then a question arises about the evidence relating to that conditions of confinement question. So we're sort of at two levels of litigation here. So there were a series of rulings by Judge Gladys Kessler in the D.C. District Court that had required the government to turn over videotapes um, or to, publish, to publicize videotapes of some of the force-feeding in theory, to increase public understanding of exactly what the government was doing and whether this was a real problem. Um, the government appealed that decision to the D.C. Circuit, and on Friday we got the D.C. Circuit decision in which the panel unanimously reversed Judge Kessler's disclosure order. So, no need to disclose. No need to disclose the all. videotapes. Um, but, Bobby, for very different reasons, and we, you know, with the return of senior D.C. Circuit Judge A. Raymond Randolph. So, let's first talk about uh, Randolph's solo opinion on this issue or solo rationale. So, I mean, I should say, you know, folks who have been following the Guantanamo litigation, Judge Randolph will be a familiar name. Um, Judge Randolph had the uh, good fortune or fortuity of writing the D.C. Circuit's opinions in Razul, where he was reversed by the Supreme Court, in Hamdan, where he was reversed by the Supreme Court, in Boumediene, where he was reversed by the Supreme Court, and in Kiemba 1, where he was only vacated by the Supreme Court. He, I'm sure would say these are red badges of courage. Um, uh, indeed, he, uh, and yeah. he has said it. He yeah. has given yeah. speeches yeah. where he has been very openly critical of yeah. the Supreme Court in these contexts. So what, do you, what did he argue here about why these videos need not be produced to the public? So although Judge Randolph purported to write for the majority, neither of the concurring judges joined in Part two, where Judge Randolph basically concludes that the press enterprise decision, the case where the Supreme Court recognized a qualified First Amendment right of public access to certain kinds of legal proceedings, um, doesn't apply to this case. And it doesn't apply to this case, Randolph says, for two Wait, reasons. Wait, you, you mean categorically does not apply or when the factors are cashed out? Categorically. Cate okay, that's the key. Right. It's, it's saying that that, that whole doctrine can't even come into play here. Right. So um, just to, to quote from page 17 of the slip opinion, press enterprise two therefore does not apply to this case and neither the interveners nor the public at large have a right under the First Amendment to receive properly classified national security information filed in court during the pendency of Diop's petition for rid of habeas corpus. In English, what he's saying is that the, the First Amendment right recognized in press enterprise cannot overcome valid classification decisions at least in civil cases. And then how does that differ from what the, the actual majority on this point offered as their rationale? So in concur separate concurring opinions, um, senior D.C. Circuit Judge uh, Stephen Williams and D.C. Circuit Judge Judith Rogers um, concurred um, in the bottom line, but by applying the press enterprise factors. Right. So they so implicitly, or I think very, rather directly, rejecting the proposition that 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 case has no application, and just saying, look, you, you just got to apply it and decide in this particular circumstance is disclosure warranted. And they said no. And I, and by the way, I think that's completely correct that it's not warranted in this particular case. But I just, I, I think that's probably right. I mean, Bobby, if we had more time and if we wanted to go further into the weeds, I'd probably try to convince you that it's not quite as easy as as the D.C. Circuit makes it out to be. Um, but at the very least, I mean, I think it's interesting to note what really would have been both headline grabbing mm -hmm. and really surprising 
as recently as five years ago, a major DC Circuit Guantanamo decision. Yeah, and no one. Could. No majority, producing three opinions, and no one noticed. The space is too crowded with other stuff, much of which we've been talking about. Um, it, it is interesting, too, though, just to underscore the importance of these cases about public disclosure, so much of substantive legal development comes about because of earlier litigation that pries out of the government's hand certain bits of information, sometimes sometimes to the good of public policy, I think sometimes to the bad. It, it, it varies from case to case. Uh, this stuff really matters, and it's hard to follow. It always seems kind of dry and boring to the outsiders when it's happening, but the downstream consequences tend to be big. Indeed, and, and, and part of why I think folks should be paying a lot of attention to the question of First Amendment rights of public access to these kinds of proceedings is because the context body where it's really going to come up at some point is the military commissions. Um, there have already been claims by media organizations that the 9-11 trial has been um, sealed and closed in ways that violate the media's First Amendment right of access to the proceeding. Mm. The CMCR, the Court of Military Commission Review, has summarily rejected those claims on ripeness grounds. Mm. They're going to come back. And so, you know, the D.C. Circuit, because it is also the appellate court over the military commissions, right. not going to be the last time we hear about First, First Amendment rights of public access to proceedings at Guantanamo. Very important issue, so stay tuned. Hi. Uh, anything more substantively? Should we talk briefly about uh, Bo Bergdahl? Bo Bergdahl is back in the news, Bobby. Who is Bo Bergdahl? There's a lot of Bs, a lot of alliteration in that one. Bo Bergdahl, Bo, who would... Uh, Bo, Bo Bergdahl has bounced his oh, no. <laughs> behind back into... The Brig. The, the Brig? No, it's, but it's not... Well, yeah, actually, it is the Brig, probably. I don't yeah. know where he's being held, but in any event... Uh, Here in Texas, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, goodness. All right. Um, road trip for the trial. When is the court-martial scheduled to take place, Steve? Uh, later this year. Okay, so he's being court-martialed in connection with having gone AWOL while deployed into a combat zone. And, so, right, two yeah. charges, desertion and misbehavior before the enemy, the latter being an right. especially serious charge. And this is, a, this is a famous case for many reasons, not least because uh, serial... You know, literally serialized the story. Uh, he had he had been brought back into American custody after he ended up in Taliban con or Taliban control. Yes, Taliban control. Uh, famously, or perhaps some would say infamously, based on a swap of prisoners, where a number of Taliban uh, senior leaders who were prisoners at Guantanamo were uh, swapped out to bring him back. Uh, notably, just interesting legal footnote that we can talk about some other time, uh, done in a way that violated the statute that uh, required advance notice to Congress. Probably. I think. Violated. The, <laughs> yeah, there may or may not be. And, and it basically gave us the curious circumstance of the Obama administration effectively asserting the commander-in-chief override. They didn't really. Come on. There was more well, of a sort of statu uh, it, it was more it, of a strange statutory construction argument. Kind of, kind of the same thing, really. It's just... Trying to make it look less Article 2-y and more you, okay, interpretive -y. Bob, Bobby Chesney, do you honestly think that when Congress enacted... <laughs> I've got him riled up now. Do you honestly think that when Congress enacted the transfer restrictions, they specifically meant to preclude the president from, trans, from, 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 from a detainee transfer that would return home in American and foreign custody? Oh, I didn't say they couldn't do it. And nor did Congress. <laughs> Congress just said we need 30 days notice. So I realize these are not the facts of Bergdahl, but had the government <laughs> had a compelling argument that 30 days notice would have compromised the operation, would you have bought it? They might have had a good commander-in-chief oh, override. I, 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 why, can't I this, why can't you hang your hat on that? Because I have problems with the commander-in-chief override. That, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, that's not why Bergdahl is back in the news. All right. Right. Why is he back in the news? <laughs> Bergdahl is back in the news um, because of something called unlawful command influence. Ah. Um, and my friend and yours, President Donald Trump. Okay, so unlawful command influence is not a concept we're used to hearing about because it, it's not something that plays a role in the civilian criminal justice system. Even though you might think there's an analogy here, the president is ultimately the, the ultimate uh, executor of the law, so maybe there's some way in which he could influence prosecutors. You, you get glimpses of that sort of thinking in certain contexts, but it's different in the military justice system. Steve, why is that? Well, so the, the most obvious and important reason why it's different in the military justice system is because almost everyone involved in a court-martial is a member of the Uniformed Armed Services and is therefore ultimately answerable to the president as commander-in-chief. And in a, in a different way, in a way that's backed by court-martial sanctions, the, the entire structure of military discipline and obedience, there's a, there's, a, there's a level of control from the top by design and for very good reason that's profound in the military system. And so the, from, from 1950, when Congress basically created the modern structure for the military justice system and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, they prohibited both actual and apparent unlawful command influence 
um, which is defined as an attempt to coerce or influence the action of a court martial or any other military tribunal or any member thereof in reaching the findings or sentence in any case. The Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, the highest court in the military justice system, has called unlawful command influence, quote, the mortal enemy of military justice, unquote. <laughs> so this is a thing. This is a thing. This is a thing you're telling me. I think a good example that I'd ask you to give to our listeners, I think really captures sort of the, the importance of this and the, and the sweep it can have. Talk about what happened when President Obama talked. Uh, when, when he was president, he had comments to the public in general not as to any particular case, but in general, about sexual assault cases that are proceeding in the military. Right. So, so President Obama gave some pretty sharply worded comments about how disappointed he was um, in the lack of meaningful progress, in his view, in sexual assault prosecutions in the military. Um, he basically referred to how he thought members of the military committed of sexual assault needed to face, in his words, quote, real consequences, unquote. Right. He didn't refer to any individual case. He didn't refer to what consequences he had in mind. Bobby, all he said was abstract members of the military convicted of these offenses should face real consequences. And what then happened in a couple of real pending particular cases? <laughs> so in a couple of real pending particular cases, the military judge ruled that those comments by the sitting president were unlawful command influence because they suggested that the president had a vested interest in particular punishments in cases in which the ultimate judgment was conviction. Now, and, and this and this may or may not have been the right ruling by that judge. That, that does seem like an awfully strong re- reaction to, yeah. a, to a very loose and generalized statement. And at a certain point, there's a risk that you're basically muzzling you know, the commander-in-chief on down from talking at all about general policy issues of military justice. So that's a that's an offsetting concern that's out there. But the point is, you see how sweeping and important the doctrine is, and it's not something that those of us used to the civilian system right. are accustomed to thinking of as a big issue. And indeed, the military justice system routinely treats this as basically the third rail, like the thing to be avoided. Um, the Court of Appeals to the Armed Forces has said, even the mere appearance of unlawful command influence may be as devastating in the military justice system as the actual manipulation of any given trial. Right. So now what has this all got to do with Bo Bergdahl? All right. So let's rewind to the 2016 campaign and then candidate Trump. Um, So during the 2016 election cycle, uh, then candidate Trump repeatedly suggested, among other things, loosening the laws on treason while promising to review Bergdahl's case. He referred to Bergdahl specifically in about three or four dozen different speeches, um, saying that Bergdahl had defected to the enemy, saying he went to the other side, saying he negotiated with terrorists. He described him over and over again as a dirty, rotten traitor. He called him Did the worst. Did he mean dirty, rotten scoundrel? That would have been better. Phrase? I actually would have appreciated yeah. that. Um, called him the worst, no good, this bum, a whack job, this piece of garbage, and, quote, a son of a bitch, unquote. <laughs> How long was this speech? This was part of his stump speech. All right. Um, he referred to Bergdahl as a very bad person, and here's where things get interesting, who killed six people, although in different rallies it was either five or six or five or six in number, um, who died, of, uh, in Trump's words, searching for Bergdahl. All right, so he, th- he thinks... By the way, not he, true. He thinks Bergdahl is a dirtbag. Lots of people do, and it may well be true. Now... He's only campaigning then. He's not the commander-in-chief then. Isn't he free to say stuff? So this, is, so this is the question Bergdahl's case raises. And before I go any further, I should say, so I filed an amicus brief on Monday in support of Bergdahl's unlawful command influence claim, which is currently before the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Bobby, I think the central question is exactly what you raised. Can UCI, as it's called, right, unlawful mm-hmm. command influence, derive from statements that a commander makes before they're in a position of command? Now... Our gut reaction might be, no, right? That at the time President Trump was making these statements, he wasn't the commander-in-chief, no one in the military justice system was actually worried about the effect that those statements would have on their careers and their career advancement. Mm-hmm. But let me put the matter to you slightly differently. Mm-hmm. If you're the military judge in Bergdahl's case, are you at all worried, based on what you know President Trump has said about Bergdahl, um, and based on what you know Trump has said about other judges in the past, that if you somehow rule against the government, if Bergdahl is acquitted, if you throw out some of the evidence, um, that Trump is going to attack you personally. Trump attack a judge? Right. Um, that Trump is going to um, take steps to try to thwart any future career advancement you might be, you might be entitled to. Mm-hmm. Right? Is it even yeah. plausible that a judge might be worried right. about of, that? And of course, the answer, you put it that way, good lawyer that you are, the answer has to be yes, there's something there. Then you have to think about, okay, um, what if Trump's comments had come at a speech the day before he declared for his candidacy and he just was 
being interviewed on Howard Stern, and he got asked this question. He said all that. Would we draw the line? Ultimately, there's a question of what kind of doctrine uh, applies here. Is it a bright line rule that will reach beyond in time the moment you became commander in chief to reach into your candidacy, or does it go into your whole career? At a certain point, this seems like it's just got to be limited, and, and it's tempting to embrace the bright line of until you're the commander in chief, yeah. until you actually have the job, your comments, however much a shadow they may cast, um, we're going to exclude that for fear of not being able to draw the line anywhere. So it's totally tempting. I, I get the argument for the bright line, and, and, I'm, and I think it's a very good one. I think the contrast between this context, Bobby, and let's say the travel ban litigation, right, mm -hmm. where President right. Trump's statements same have issue. come up. Same issue. Um, and there's now a, an incitement case in Kentucky where earlier this week a district court denied a motion to dismiss, um, mm -hmm. right? I think the difference to me is what purpose is unlawful command influence serving? And in this context, right, the whole question is what will the public think about the ultimate result in the Boberg right. Will they credit the system itself or will they think it's been a fix? Um, yeah. and, and, and the problem is, is that, you know, at least when you frame it from the perspective of are folks going to be thinking about the prospect mm -hmm. of President Trump personally commenting on this case, of President Trump attacking those who he believes, you know, are, are, are yeah. leading to the wrong result. I, I, I'm not I'm not I'm not oblivious to the problem of line drawing. Yeah. But this strikes me as a pretty darn good case for you know a serious UCI claim. It does seem to me that it, as much as I was sort of putting forward in professor fashion, yeah. uh, how, how about a bright line test? Um, this seems like a situation where you're sort of inevitably going to come back to a totality of the circumstances, uh, sort of a sliding scale over time. The further back in time, the stronger the, the statements would have to be. Here, it's not that far back. It was in the campaign context. The statements, as you read them really, really strong statements, and you might be able to embrace, uh, you could extend UCI, this doctrine, to that scenario without, with, without, without having committed yourself for all cases. But boy, when they are if that's what they do, they're going to need to be really careful here. So let's talk about the who, who they are in this, in this context, right? So, so Bergdahl has filed um, basically a petition for writ of mandamus, um, seeking either to have his case dismissed or in the alternative, Bobby, seeking to have the kind of punishment to which he can be exposed limited, right, as a sanction for UCI. Basically, to have the court say off the bat, um, there's going to be limits on what we can do so that they can't then be worried about the specter of not imposing a sufficiently serious punishment. Um, that claim <clears throat> was rejected by the trial court. Um, Bergdahl then went to the Army Court of Criminal Appeals. The Army Court of Criminal Appeals um, denied the petition without prejudice, without reaching the merits. And there's a really interesting concurring opinion by Judge Wolf who says, listen, we, the Army Court of Criminal Appeals, are not the right people to decide this issue. The Article One independent Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, whose judges are not service members, right. who That's serve right. for fixed terms, and indeed, Bobby, which was created largely because of yeah. having a forum that could enforce unlawful command influence is the right forum for this. Yeah, I, I think that sounds right to me. And so that's so that's where we are. So um, Bergdahl has now filed what's called a writ appeal petition in CAF, mm -hmm. the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. I mentioned on Monday we filed an amicus brief on behalf of five former judges, not saying that this is UCI, but that this is a, a grave question that needs to be decided by the Court of Appeals now. You got me on that. Yeah, I, I, I'd sign up for that much. I'm not, I'm not convinced I would uh, be willing ultimately to say that this is UCI, let alone that I would remove some uh, punitive sanction. No, totally. But I, I do think, Kat, you're right, that CAF is the right body to decide And this. to do it now, right? And to, and to sort of not have this shadow looming over the trial because that might be a bell you can't unring. Uh, that I don't know about. That I'd have to ponder more. I'm not so sure that's the case. But suffice to say, yet another example of how Donald Trump's um, not necessarily careful comments um, can create legal consequences down the road. And Bobby, holy For apart, which we say thank you. Well, indeed. But wholly apart from what happens to Bergdahl, right, I think the larger point here is, think about a military commission. What happens if something goes wrong in one of the military commission trials? UCI is also an issue there. Those are also military judges. You know, do we really not think President Trump would take to Twitter? Well, right, and it, which is both cause for alarm and also cause for alarm in both directions, right? You, yep. you see where it, it does seem like you're going to get a lot of flack from the commander-in-chief. We've, we've seen examples where civilian courts have been subjected to this, so of course you're going to see it also with a military judge who displeases them. On the other hand, is it really going to be the case then suddenly every time Donald Trump decides to haul off on Twitter and, and say something, you know, there's there's bombs exploding in the litigation process all over the system? So, so I mean, a I lot, guess... A lot of, a lot of outcomes can be affected by that. I think that's right. And maybe it's time for someone in a position of independent authority to say to the president, listen, 
part of being president is actually being a little more careful about what you say. <laughs> I'm sure this will work. <laughs> it should it should be enough that he listens to this podcast. You know, we've we've kind of gone off for a while, but uh, we've been talking about so much law, and I'm I'm just sick of it. Can we talk about TV or something else? A little little uh, mental break for us here. Um, maybe let's go like a long, long time ago. Hmm. Is there a TV series we both like that's set like a couple hundred thousand years ago? What would ago? be really great, something kind of geeky, but also with some national security law implications. I thought you wanted to stop talking about law. Well, yeah, it's a lie. I really wanted to come back around to it. I just wanted to go through pop culture. Let's talk about Battlestar Galactica. Now, let's be clear, right? We're talking about the modern Battlestar Galactica, not the, you know, hokey 1978 version. Whoa, do, do, do not start criticizing <laughs> the original. The original is so wonderful at so many levels. So Bobby, when you when you proposed the idea of ending today's episode with a Battlestar Galactica conversation, I got really excited because I thought we were going to talk about like the Secretary of Education being 43rd in line of succession or the occupation and you know how seasons two and three really flipped over the yeah. Iraq war. Yeah, actually that is what I wanted to talk about. But No, I, you want to talk about the Ending. You, no, well, spoiler I, alert. I, what I really want to talk about is, is defending the greatness of the original. As much of a knockoff of other products as it was, uh, j- the music alone, the music alone made it so worthwhile. But let's talk about how in the revision was it Sci-Fi Channel that did yes. this? When the the wonderful uh, reboot that they did, uh, you mentioned all of this has happened before. All of this will happen again. I will say it's that's a, the title for this week's episode. <laughs> you know, it's so true, too, with the whole uh, right. Susan Rice deal. Right. Um, so, with uh, the, to me, the biggest... There were obviously some very transparently uh, designed to comment on current issues episodes, like when they had basically a military commission proceeding, right? That that was not very subtle. Um, when, but, when they had suicide bombings? So, that w- I thought that was wonderful. When they had uh, the humans were occupied, right? So humanity in general was in the position of the indigenous population with an occupation force. On New Caprica. On New Caprica. The Cylons are occupying them. And the humans, including the heroes, right, start carrying out bombings, including suicide bombings. Now, I think there's an interesting question to how analogous this is to some of the harder suicide bombing questions. Because if I recall correctly... Well, the way the show is set up, it didn't give you a clean sort of combatant-civilian divide for the for the occupiers, right? That there were, there were basically they were all sort of of a piece in that respect. They were all the enemy armed force, and so you don't really have bombings of civilians. Although actually, I think there might have been an episode or there two where they, were, yeah. it was collaborators, it was fellow humans. So who they, were they bombed the police graduation, right? The, Although that's a security service, right, in an occupation setting. <laughs> Listen to you, Geneva Four. Right, I know. I mean, it it, it gets muddy, right? Uh, but uh, what I especially like, there's one scene in particular with uh, Colonel Ty, who at this point has gone full, uh, you know. Full uh, eye patch. He had the eye patch, and he had kind of a watch cap on. And there's a scene where, uh, so he's been orchestrating a campaign of suicide bombings against the occupation force. Um, and he's the insurgent leader orchestrating all of this. And they film this one scene where he's, de- he's debating with somebody the morality of what they're doing. And it's filmed in a way that had a lot of shadow. I don't know if they did this on purpose or not, but when I saw it, I immediately thought, this guy looks like the blind sheikh, Abdel Rahman, who, who died recently, mm-hmm. by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, it's someone who also justified this sort of activity. I, I've never known, was that some immensely clever bit of, of art direction to, to sort of draw that connection visually for the for the cognoscente, or was it just, no, they were just trying to create a dark scene and give him sort of a tough guy uh, you know, he had, but he had a cap. He, he, there was a suggestion of vision problems, and there he is holding forth, trying to justify the unjustifiable, perhaps. So what you're saying, if I'm understanding this correctly, is folks who are interested in sort of a fictionalized, entertaining, well-made television show that actually will expose them to some of the real hard moral and legal dilemmas in our universe, yeah. if they are not already familiar with the sort of the, re, the, the reiteration of Battlestar Galactica, or BSG, as the fans might call it, they ought to be. And, and by the same token, go watch the original Red Dawn. Do not go watch the remake, for heaven's sakes, but watch <laughs> the original if you've not. Run, don't walk, to go watch it. It's chock full of interesting issues where the, the people who arguably don't have the privilege to do what they're doing are the Americans and the heroes. So, I'll just, so, so, so if, if the plug for BSG, which by the way I loved, um, is its sort of resonation and its resonance with, with sort of some of the contemporary dilemmas, let me also put in a plug for a Harry Turtledove book. Hmm. Harry Turtledove is a strange dude who writes crazy alternative history. 
Um, and one of the books that I've, of his that I find most provocative is a book called The Man with the Iron Heart. Um, and the book was written right at the height of things getting really bad in Iraq. Um, and the premise of the book is what had happened, you know, Turtle Dove, the, 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 the sort of the conceit of all of his books is one weird thing goes wrong in history uh. and all the history changes. So the premise in his case is that Heydrich was not assassinated, um, that something weird happened to foil the assassination plot. And so Heydrich becomes the head of the werewolves, the sort of underground resistance that Hitler creates to sort of push back once it's clear they're losing the well, war. And in this case, they actually really go full operational. and Full operational to the point that actually the suicide bombings, right, you know, insurgent attacks. Oh, I see the, okay. Yeah. And, and How basically, interesting. And they destroy the American support for the war to the point where the Americans finally pull out of Germany and the Nazis take over again. Oh, so what about the Red Army? I would have think that... Uh... You know, uh, so the, there's there's also stuff about how it's even worse with the Red Army, how they also convince the Red Army to give up. I mean, so that's the part that I, you wonder <laughs> about that. If, I'm not sure they get to make that choice. But it's, you know, for folks who both find that stuff interesting and who find the sort of the broader currents interesting, it's, it's a fun read, if not a sort of uplifting one. All right. So, reader or listeners, you have your assignment. Uh, Watch all is- four seasons of BSG, plus the, the several sort of movies on the side, including The Plan and, um, oh, what's the, oh, shoot. Keep talking. What's what's the really good? Um, no, with Admiral Crane and Razor and Razor. Oh, that's good. you have to watch that's Razor. Good. All right. So on that note, we'll turn you loose to go uh, hit your homework. And uh, thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you again a week from now. Let's go, Mets. Stay right. safe out there. Adios.